It is absolutely fabulous to be back, to share in the wonderful worship that has always been Kirk in the Hills, to enjoy the glorious music, and to see, I didn't say so many old faces, <laughs> because I looked in the mirror this morning. And I want particularly to thank your pastor for the, the warmth of his invitation. But let me tell you, brother, if you're nervous, think how I'm feeling. It was round about New Year 2014 that it began to dawn on me that I was reaching my use-by date. And so it was probably time to think about retiring. And that was going to be a hard decision because this is such a fabulous place to be. But just a few weeks after the decision had been reached, I got this invitation from a brand new church on Longboat Quay to be their part-time pastor. Longboat Quay is very much a resort and retirement community. It's hugely busy in winter, as some of you who came to check me out can attest. And then for the rest of the year, it gets nice and quiet. So I've been thrilled to be the stated supply pastor, that's the official Presbyterian term, in this wonderful new congregation. We've got members from all over the country, many of them incredibly accomplished members who check their egos at the church door and serve with grace and humility, and it's just a fabulous place to be. Now, I don't want you to think that my sermon title, The Best of Times, means that I'm going to annoy you with talk of how wonderful it is to be part-time retired, but it is. It's great, and we're having a ball, having a ball. When the junior choirs and the chancel choir were gathering in the fireside room for prayer, and it was wonderful that Glenn had the junior choirs here for this service, Pastor Nate explained to the choirs that some of the choir, some of the junior choir members were kids that I had baptized. And I suspect their parents put them up to it, but several hands shot up. And I had to admit that I didn't recognize any of them <laughs> because they had changed. But then, haven't we all? It is wonderful to be here, and thank you for your warm and gracious welcome back. Let's join in prayer. Do not let your word become a judgment on us, O Lord, that we hear your word and do not act on it, that we know your word and do not love it, that we say we believe your word and do not live it by your Holy Spirit. Make us people of your way, your truth, your life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. It was the best of times and the worst of times is the way in famous words Charles Dickens summed up the French Revolution. The revolution had started with a surge of hope and a promise of better things, but then ended in the chaos of mob rule 
and violence and anarchy. So much to celebrate, contradicted by so much to appall. The best of times and the worst of times. It's not so different these days, is it? We live in the best of times with resources that earlier generations could scarcely even contemplate. Surgeons deploy robots to do intricate surgery in inaccessible parts of the human body. Developments in drugs and treatments have changed many terminal diseases into conditions that are simply chronic. Those of you who may remember me may be interested to know that I am now 19 years cancer-free. And this year, Joan is seven and a half years out of her stem cell transplant and getting stronger all the time. Oh, she needs to, to try to keep me in line. Today's internet offers a worldwide library of information and resources. Some people still use cell phones to make calls, but they do so much more now. TV, video, pictures. Do you know at Harvard University, they've developed a technique of being able to diagnose depression based on someone's selfie. And in addition, our daughter tells us that her cell phone can tell her where her children are and what time they will be home. Computers push frontiers of innovation in unprecedented ways. They perform tricks that used to take able people ages to perform. Cars warn you when you stray out of your lane on the freeway and break when a pedestrian steps in front of you. And of course, at home, Alexa hangs on your every word. Did, did you see that thing recently in the news where a woman had not gone to her church one Sunday and chose instead to watch the live stream service on her phone, uh, on, on her TV at home. And the pastor, kind of a bit like me, was enthusing about modern technology. And he said, I only have to say, Alexa, we've run out of toilet paper. And Alexa takes care of it. And suddenly the woman sitting at home heard a voice behind her say, I've added toilet paper to your shopping list. And then, just a few weeks back, that incredible photograph of a black hole. 200 scientists in four continents collaborated to get it. In the Week magazine, William Falk said, the value of feats like these is not entirely scientific. They remind us that human beings are not always petty, small, and mean, and that at our collaborative best, Homo sapiens is capable of magnificent things.
truly the best of times. But yet, as Falk has just hinted, not always. Communications have become victims of our culture wars. There's fake news, there's the selling of our data, there's the poison in the comment section of almost every article that is published on the web. While Facebook and Twitter take schoolyard bullying to a nastier level. I heard Monday that youth is no longer the best years of life, but the stressed years of life. And of course, the computers that have saved time and eliminated drudgery have also eliminated thousands of jobs and left people feeling left out and vulnerable to addictions. And our super effective drugs are provoking some diseases to morph into drug-resistant forms while new diseases and conditions spring up to baffle our best doctors. The best of times, but also the worst of times. And it's no different for Christians, specifically with regard to our faith. We enjoy greater freedoms of worship from high church to low church. We can worship online, in our car, at the beach, we can worship at our own church or at someone else's church. We can share in a Bible study led by an expert in the field. They even have apps for daily Bible reading that will nag you if you forget a reading one day. Or so they tell me. Great blessings all. And yet, we are surrounded by the erosion of Christian values, the mocking of Christian truths, and our place in the world seems uncomfortably compromised. Truly, the best of times and the worst of times. Has it always been thus? I guess the Christian doctrine of original sin would tell us, yes, it has. It was certainly the case for the Apostle Paul. He lived in the best of times. The Roman Empire had brought a kind of peace to the whole Mediterranean world. The Romans had made travel extraordinarily efficient and easy. How else do you think the Apostle Paul was able to clock up that amazing number of frequent flyer miles? And the use of the Greek language all over the empire meant that Paul could go almost anywhere and preach and be understood. Amazing times, the best, and yet also the worst. The Romans maintained law and order by a policy of shoot first, ask questions later. Did you notice from our reading today how Paul and Silas were beaten up and locked up, all due process entirely denied? And then slavery, rarely humane, 
regularly cruel, degrading exploitation. And so it was that at Philippi, the apostle encountered a case of human trafficking. A slave girl with a mental condition made her owners a fortune by fortune telling. There are always people willing to part with their hard-earned cash. And her condition gave her a kind of perceptiveness that allowed her to discern the integrity of Paul and Silas. And for days on end, she yelled for everyone to hear, these people are slaves of the Most High God, and they proclaim a way of salvation. But here's the puzzle. She did this for days on end and really ticked Paul off. And yet, he did nothing. It took him days before he finally turned and healed her. What's that about? I think Paul was concerned for his mission. It was early days in Philippi, and there had only been one convert, Lydia. Paul's previous experience as a missionary had taught him that not everyone welcomed the Christian message. He'd seen trouble and riots in several places following his ministry. And that was something he didn't need any more of. He knew that healing the slave girl would annoy her owners. Their source of income gone, they could be guaranteed to stir up trouble that would jeopardize the mission and sully the good name of Jesus. So I think Paul's inaction was caused by his concern for the good name of Jesus. And friends, I wish that today Christians were concerned for the reputation of Jesus and the good name of Christianity. I would love to see Christians, before they speak and mouth off, that they read Scripture and make sure that their comments align with the truth of Jesus. That their commitment would first and foremost be to the Word of God and not to some human credo or philosophy. Back in the second century, an outsider observed Christians and remarked, see how these Christians love one another. And he said it with respect and admiration. These days, the words would clang with sarcasm and reproach as Christians quarrel and fight like the best of them and play politics like the worst of them. And as a result, the name of Jesus is dishonored in our day and our faith discredited. But as Paul knew, the best way, 
The only way to honor the name of Jesus is to follow Jesus, to do what he commands, to act in ways that express his teaching and embrace his spirit. Now as then, Christianity needs to be proclaimed, not protected, carried out, not concealed. And so Paul healed the slave girl, and as he had anticipated, trouble flared. Nonetheless, he had borne brave and faithful witness to the healing love of Christ for all, including the poor, the forgotten, the exploited. Paul's actions were totally in line with Jesus, who in his ministry, had lived out the meaning of the great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. He healed people who were diseased, disabled, or disturbed, and several times got himself into trouble for so doing. Jesus left no room for doubt. He cares for the left out and the left behind. And as Christians, reflect that and live that, we gain credibility for our presence and our mission in the world. In 1983, the Christian philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff lost his son in a climbing accident. He wrote, a searingly honest book wrestling with the grief that overwhelmed him. And after the book was published, it became a textbook in philosophy classes, in all sorts of colleges and schools. One of the most unexpected of venues being the Hanlon Prison in Ionia here in Michigan. In that prison, Calvin College, sorry Mel, Calvin College offers inmates full, undiluted academic programs. And Wolsterstorff's book featured as a text in that program. And when the prisoners heard that their teacher knew the author of their textbook, they said, couldn't he come and visit us in class? an invitation which Wolstersdorf very quickly accepted. The experience stunned him. He said, these men in the class were themselves in grief, most of them not over the death of a child, but over the ruin they had wrecked on their own lives and the lives of others. They were amazingly open more open than students in any other college class I have ever taught. Their comments were articulate, emotionally intense, suffused with life experience, eloquent. They offered interpretations of my words that had never occurred to me. I was the student that day Remember, he's a philosophy professor. I was the student that day. They 
The prisoners were the teachers. When the session was over, they lined up to shake my hand and they said how honored they were that I had come to visit their class. As the last few filed past, I said what I felt, but had not until then been able to put into words. They had honored me. The lost and the last and the least, beloved by Christ, and the experience of Christ releases two ways blessing. Apparently, Calvin College, too, envisions a world where every heart experiences God's transforming love. But don't let talk of love lead you to assume we're thinking about mushy sentimentality or stuff like that. God can do tough love, too. Who's to say? Paul's healing of the slave girl might have pierced her owner's hearts and let them see the error of their cruel ways. Sometimes God's love works through ripple effects, not immediately apparent. Our next-door neighbor at Lakewood Ranch in Florida told me last week about a ministry he had been involved in. But he explained first I had to know something about him. He told me that a friend had once said to him, Bill, you're a bleeding-heart conservative. We are used to hearing the expression bleeding-heart liberal. So Bill was a bit taken aback, and he needed that explained. Well, his friend said, you would give someone the shirt off your back if they needed it. Okay, Bill said. Then the guy went on, but if they failed to live up to the standards you'd expect, you'd take the shirt back again and probably take their pants too. <laughs> so. Bleeding Heart Conservative Bill joined a mission program working to help homeless families get back on their feet again, kind of like South Oakland Shelter. Bill was assigned a family to work with, a woman and I forget two or three small children. But in his involvement with the family, Bill discovered that the woman was not living up to her side of the deal that the program required. And so he called her on it. She was furious, collected her kids, and left the program. Bill never saw her again. Five years later, out of the blue, the mail brought Bill an invitation to attend the woman's baptism. The love of Christ had done its work. I believe the Kirk is absolutely right 
to affirm the truth that God's love is indeed transforming love. God's love can transform the worst of times, the worst of situations, the worst of people, and make them the best. But God needs us to make that happen. Let us pray. Transform us, dear God, by your redeeming love. Then use us to transform your broken, hurting world through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.